Well, good morning. <laughs> that is not an encouraging start. Let's try that again. Good morning. See? I knew you knew the answer. Very good. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians. I hope your eagerness for God's word is greater than your eagerness to see me up here this morning. Uh, it is a great joy and delight to be able to share with you from Scripture. And I, I honestly, I do pray that you come and, and uh, there is a great hunger in your heart and that, a great thrill in your soul to think we get to study God's word today. We get to hear from our God through his scripture and by his grace. In particular, this Sunday, as, as you'll discover in, in just a little bit, is, is a very difficult passage in front of us. And so you will be helped, uh, and I know I sh share, with this, share, you, share this with you almost every Sunday, you, but I really mean it this time. You're going to be helped to have God's word open in your lap. We're going to be referring back to it again and again. And uh, we're going to have to think deeply today, and, and I think that's good for us. I think perhaps in your entire week, the time in which you should think most deeply and intensely is during the preaching of God's word. And so I hope you come uh, willing and ready to do so as we uh, continue our study of the book of Colossians, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 24 this morning. Hear now the word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. And even as I've exhorted your people, I pray that there would be a great delight in our hearts. Even as I open your word this morning and, and for my own personal devotion, there was a thrill just to think, God is going to speak to me today. I pray we have that thrill today. The God of heaven and earth, our Lord and King, delights to speak to his people. He does so through feeble messengers. So we pray that you would speak, that we call out as Samuel did long ago, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. So we ask it in Christ's name, amen. It was in the year 1788 that a young boy was born named Adoniram Judson, born in Massachusetts, a PK. His father was a pastor, Parsons Judson. He was raised to know Christ, to love Christ, to worship Christ, and give himself to Christ. As a teenager, he was sent off to Providence, Rhode Island to study at Rhode Island College, which would be later renamed Brown University. There, Judson distinguished himself academically, not as a surprise to anyone who knew him. After all, he did teach himself to read by age three. Judson was there at Rhode Island uh, University. Uh, there he came under the influence of a student that was one year ahead of him named Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames happened to be a devout deist. That is, an individual who believes that God is unknowable and that God is not in any way involved in human affairs. Sadly, Judson was persuaded. He embraced Eames' deism, rejected the Christian faith from which he was raised. He, of course, kept this a secret from his father. 
Judson uh, was graduated in 1807 at age 19 as the valedictorian of his class. He moved back home where he started a school and began to write textbooks. And yet he found such a life deeply, a deep discontentment in it. In fact, everything changed on one particular day when he got into an argument as a 20-year-old with his father. And the argument was so heated, it was at this time that he announced to his father that he was no longer a Christian, that he rejected the Bible. He did not think that Jesus was divine or in any way sent by God. He even attempted to, to persuade his, his father to embrace deism as a rational and educated man, leaving, of course, his father brokenhearted. And Judson was clear, uh, was clear to him that it was time for him to move on. Mark Dever, who uh, tells the story of Adoniram Judson, said he went to New York City, where even 200 years ago, that is what disaffected 20-year-olds did. There he joined a company of actors, uh, leading what he would later call reckless life. He would describe it saying, we found lodging where we could, ran up a score, and then decamped without paying the reckoning. He would live like that for a year. Finally, he decided that this life also was vanity and that he reluctantly needed to return home, of course, uncertain of the welcome in which he would receive and the future in which he would embrace. Along the way home, he stayed at a village inn for lodging. At least he tried to stay. He found the village inn to be completely full. That is, except for one room, in which the innkeeper explained to him was next to a young man who seemed to be dying. Judson, slightly bemused, assured the innkeeper that this would cause him no uneasiness. Saying, my good fellow, I trust I'm wise enough that a younger, uh, that a stranger dying doesn't frighten me. Just hand over the key, I'm tired and weary. Well, perhaps Judson overestimated his indifference. Because throughout the night, he was kept awake by the agonizing cries and pleas of a dying man who clearly did not know God. Cries that began in intensity in the middle of the night, only to grow weaker as the night wore on. As he lay in bed, Justin began to think of the prospect of his own death, his own dying. And he began to wonder if he was prepared to stand before God and face him on that day. And yet as soon as those thoughts entered his mind, he was overcome with shame that he even entertained them. After all, he was an educated man. After all, he was, uh, had, had discarded such primitive beliefs that we would have to face the creator God and give an account for our lives. He even cheered himself by thinking of what his good friend Jacob Eames might have thought. You know, what, what would he say of such silly ideas? And so the next morning, Judson, as he pushed the key across the counter, asked, was asked by the innkeeper, how did you sleep? Not too well, but well enough, Judson answered. As an afterthought, Judson asked, how's the young man in the next room? The innkeeper replied, oh, I thought you heard. When they took him, I mean. He died, sir. Towards morning it was. Shame, said Judson as he turned to leave. But then he hesitated, asked one more question. He was a young man, you say? Oh, yes, very young, just out of school. About your age. Went to college in Providence. Providence, Judson said. I might have known him. What was his name? Eames, sire. Jacob Eames. Judson was struck, thunderstruck. And as he rode off, he would say that the, the horse's pounding of its hooves continued to drive him to think of the fate of his dear friend, his now dead friend. Shaken by that event, 
a different Adonai and Jotham returned home, he immediately enrolled in Andover Theological Seminary and began to study the writings of a Puritan named Thomas Boston. And in reading Boston, Jotham was convinced he soon placed his faith in Christ and received the salvation that Jesus offers. In fact, almost immediately after coming to faith in Christ, he, uh, this devout opponent to Christianity felt like God was calling him to missions, the missions to an unreached people. In fact, as you know, Adonai Justin will become the father of American missions. He will be the first American sent to a foreign land for the cause of the gospel in 1812, setting sail for Burma. I, I find Justin's story to be somewhat similar with that of Apostle Paul, of course, the man who wrote the book of Colossians. Paul, too, had a religious upbringing, was yet, and, and yet despite that religious upbringing, was opposed to Jesus, and yet was converted through an amazing set of circumstances, and then shortly thereafter was called, of course, to missions to an unreached people. In fact, that's not even where the similarities end, because both men would take the gospel to foreign lands and endure great suffering because of it. Judson, as he arrived in Burma in 1813, would face incredible opposition by the East Indian Company. But even beyond that, he would uh, lose many dear friends to premature deaths, including uh, several of his children and two wives, all dying to illness. He would spend two years in a Burma prison, often spending that time being chained upside down by the ankle. For 37 years, Judson Burma sacrificed and suffered intently for the sake of the gospel in order to bring it to a people he had, had never met before. Of course, we see something of this in Paul's life, don't we? We see that, of course, Paul here writing to this Colossian, this Colossian church, he's speaking of his work of mission. You see that in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And Paul is here uh, telling the story of his own life, indeed his suffering to cause it, uh, that, that brought it about. In fact, in verse 24, as you see, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He goes on to write these very difficult words. Difficult in the sense they're hard to understand. Uh, in verse 24, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. And so we're going to spend... Uh, a good deal of our time trying to figure out what Paul means there in verse 24. In what way are Christ's afflictions lacking? In what way does Paul then complete that lack? How is that applicable to our lives? It is, it is a, a difficult passage. I do think in many ways this will be a difficult sermon. It certainly be a, a weird sermon. Um, so I hope you like the story to begin the sermon because it's going to go downhill after that, okay? So you're welcome already. Now you've got to hold on for the rest of it. This is uh, in the part of the book of Colossians where Paul begins an autobiographical uh, discourse on his own ministry. We saw that he began that at the end of verse 23 in our last time. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and note this, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so it's here that he begins to talk about himself, and he will do so all the way through chapter 2, and verse 5, describing in great detail how it is that he ministers on behalf of God's people, on behalf of the gospel for the sake of Christ. And, and yet he begins that discourse on his ministry by explaining his suffering. Right? We see that, of course, very clearly there in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. And, of course, Paul did suffer 
for the gospel. It suffered for God's people. It suffered for Jesus. He writes this letter, as you know, we'll discover when we get to chapter 4, from prison. Um, and Paul will be in prison a number of times. And I almost think that imprisonment was the least of Paul's sufferings, kind of like a vacation for Paul. Uh, Paul uh, would, in fact, suffer a great deal when he's out of, out of uh, uh, prison. And, the, of course, the classic passage is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to consider that um, in more detail later on this afternoon. You would uh, do well to consider it, I think, in light of this sermon. But let me just read some of the verses that describe, that Paul describes his suffering. Beginning in verse 23, he says, He endured far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Now, if I had been beaten for Christ, that would be a big deal in my life, right? I would put that on Facebook, right? You would know about it. Paul says, I've been beaten for Jesus so many times, I've lost count. It's not extraordinary. Just think about this. It's not fiction. This man says, I've been beaten over and over again. In fact, he begins to detail them, saying, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I was shipwrecked, and a night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. When we read something like that, one question immediately kind of leaps to the forefront of my mind. And it's why? Why would anyone endure this over and over and over? Well, Paul gives us the answer. It's not unclear at all. Or you see in verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Here's the answer to the question why. For your sake. For the sake of the church. And so as we consider three truths about a Christian suffering this morning, you see that a Christian suffering can be church-benefiting suffering. My first point for us. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So in some way, Paul's sufferings are helping the church. In fact, you read on, it becomes more clear in verse 24. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Here it is again. For the sake of his body, that is the church. Once again, Paul is going to emphasize the importance of the church, uh, the calling of God's people together in local assemblies. And notice, continuing on in verse 25, he says, of which, that which is a pronoun, the referring, the antecedent is the church. I'm of the, in other words, of the church, of which, of the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So Paul says, I become a minister of the church. Now, I will hasten to add, minister is, a, I think, probably not the best translation. Because when you think of minister, you think of those somewhat nutty individuals, ridiculous individuals, who serve the church professionally. And that's what you think. You think minister, you think a professional Christian. That's not what Paul's. that's not the word. It's, 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 it's the word servant. He says, uh, the, the word in which he's describing here in verse 25, in which I became a minister, it's really of which I became a servant of the church. And therefore, I think this is application for all of us. All of us should, like Paul, as servants of the church, say, I will willingly suffer for the church. Now just think about that statement, suffer for the church. Does, I wonder, does that sound strange to you in any way? Suffering for the church. 
do you th- when you think of the church, do you think primarily in the context of what the church can do or will do for you, or do you think primarily how I ought to contribute, how I ought to sacrifice, how I ought to serve? Many of you know uh, we breed uh, Labradoodles. In fact, we just had 12 puppies uh, Saturday morning. Um, and by the way, when I say we breed Labradoodles, what I mean is my wife and my children breed Labradoodles. And, and they, uh, the, these Labradoodles, uh, of course, all dogs are amazing, as you know. Um, they're born, when they're born, they're about eight ounces. Uh, very small, half a pound. In eight weeks when they go home, they're around six or seven pounds. Now, some of you are good at math. You could, I mean, this is many, many times they're just doubling their weight uh, quicker than a weekly basis. It's extraordinary how fast they grow. In fact, around week four, we begin to feed them, supplement the nursing that they're getting from their, their mother. And, and so we, we put the bowl out and the, and the puppies come to, to eat from the, the food bowl. You're probably not surprised to hear they don't wait in line for each other. They will run full speed, often tumbling over their legs that can't run fast enough in order to get to the food bowl. I have seen them stand on their littermate's head while they eat. Okay. They will stand in the middle of the bowl. They could care less about any of their brothers and sisters. All they are there is for their own food. Do you come to church like a puppy comes to dinner? I'm here for me. I want my own. Or do you come thinking, how can I serve and strategizing? How can I give? And where do you park? Where do you sit? Who do you speak to? How do you serve? Because if all you are doing when you gather here as God's people, if all you are doing is receiving, I say in love, that is not what God wants for you. God wants more for you. He has more for you. He has in mind for you to serve, indeed, yes, sacrifice, and as occasion rises, even suffer for the sake of Christ. Now let me hasten to add, you must come to receive. If you don't come to receive, you're just a hypocrite. You cannot listen to the word of God for the person sitting on the other side of the sanctuary. You need to hear it for yourself. You need to praise God. You need to pray to God. And so you have to come for yourself. But the church is something more than that. You, you, ever, you ever think, I'm, I'm, I'm here for your sake. This is why I'm here. I'm here for other people's sake. You Serve for the sake of Christ's body, the church. How, how, if you are, how are you serving? How are you sacrificing? How are you suffering? Of course, I'm thankful that many of you are. I, I praise God. I think so many in this church uh, willingly and joyfully serve. And many of you, even now, there are some individuals joyfully teaching our children in our children's worship ministry. There's men uh, right now joyfully serving in this sound booth, and they will come early on Sunday morning, they'll be here on Tuesday night, and, and on and on, soften on Saturday afternoons, joyfully serving the church, you have no idea about it, I'm thankful for the praise band who joyfully serves this church, and many of you joyfully, sacrificially give to this church, and, and of course we've been blessed over the years with many people joyfully teaching Sunday school, remember what Sunday school was, wasn't that wonderful, didn't we love Sunday school, I didn't realize how much I missed it until COVID took it away, right, um, and of course, uh, many of you joyfully disciple one another, not even, uh, not even aware of it, meeting with one another. Many of you joyfully deacon in this church or serve in our security ministry. 
praise God for that. Of course, many of you are going to joyfully sacrifice in leaving Hamilton Baptist Church in about nine months to plant Lovettsville Baptist Church. Have you heard that we're planting a church? You aware of that? Nine months, September, middle of September is when we're targeting for our first public Sunday. Of course, that's a flexible date, but that's what we're hoping for. And many of you are going to go and sacrifice to do so, aren't you? And, and, and let this passage be an encouragement for you to do so. I want to rejoice in my sufferings for the sake of the church. Of course, many will remain, I hope, okay? I, I hope you all don't go. And many of you will remain, and there are going to be incredible opportunities for many of you to step up and begin to serve the church. You know, we have seven elders in this church. We are already under-eldered, if you will. Three of our seven elders are going to plant Lovettsville Baptist Church. What does that mean? We're going to need more elders. Right, the community group member leaders are going. Praise band uh, leaders are growing. Are going. Right? The people uh, who are, serve our church in many ways, givers are going. They are headed out and it's going to provide you and I wonderful opportunities to begin to sacrifice for the sake of the church. That's what Paul says I'm doing. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for the sake of Christ's body. The church. Of course, that might raise the question, how is it that Paul's sufferings benefit the church? And you hear that question? How do Paul's sufferings benefit the church? I think it's because it is only through suffering that Paul was able to establish so many churches. Right? Without a willingness to suffer, the church would never have been started in Asia uh, where Paul planted it, at least in the way it was started. In other words, the gospel always spreads through hardship, sacrifice, yes, even suffering. As we consider, secondly, the second truth about a Christian suffering, it is a gospel-spreading suffering. And it's here that we come to this very difficult uh, passage in verse 24, when he says, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So Paul says Christ's afflictions, or Christ's suffering, is lacking. And my suffering completes the deficiency that is found in Christ's suffering. And to be perfectly honest, that almost sounds like heresy. I mean, what could possibly be missing in Jesus' suffering? Does, is Paul saying that his sufferings add to the atoning work of Christ, as if there is still some debt outstanding? Of course, that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, I'm sad to say. The whole doctrine of purgatory is that we would add our sufferings to the sufferings of Christ in order to complete our salvation. Is that what Paul is saying here? Well, once again, as I remind you often, whenever we're confused about the Bible, all we need to do, I think in most times, is just to read the passage in its context. Don't take it out of its context. Read it, the verses around. And if you were here last Sunday, we rejoiced in these truths from verse 21 and 22. And you who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You were unreconciled. You have been reconciled. How? By the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus has finished that work. In fact, all we have to do is listen to the words of Jesus. What did he say while he was paying the, the penalty of our sin? It is started? No, my brothers and sisters, of course not. It is, what is it, church? Finished. finished. It's done. It's been paid. And therefore, you and I can add nothing to the atoning work of Christ. 
And so I hasten to add this morning, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it is this point that you would want to consider most intently. You could disregard everything else I say if you just give me about 90 seconds of your attention. Is that Jesus clearly teaches that when he dies on the cross, he does everything necessary for you to be saved. That is, for you to be reconciled, a sinful individual, to a holy God. And therefore, you need not add any suffering, sacrifice, or add any good works, acts of righteousness, religious observance, in order for you to be made right before a holy God. For scripture is abundantly clear that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is salvation by faith alone in Christ alone that saves us. So there is, I say emphatically this morning, there is nothing missing in Christ's afflictions in regard to their atoning work. It is finished. So that just brings us back to our question. So what then is lacking? Why does Paul say something is lacking? What's lacking and how does Paul fill that up? Okay, that's the question that we need to answer. But before we answer it, I want you to see the connection between Christ's suffering and the church's suffering. That's going to help us answer the question. Paul seems to see a connection between his suffering and Jesus' suffering. What is that connection? Well, we've already seen, in fact, verse 24 tells us, as elsewhere in the book of Colossians, that the church is, using the metaphor that scripture often does, the body of Christ. You see that end of verse 24. The church is Christ's body. In part, what that means, as we see elsewhere, is that when the church suffers, that is, when the body of Christ suffers, then what? Well, then Christ suffers. I think in some extraordinary way, our sufferings are felt by our Savior as they are his own. We learn this, of course, when Paul is converted on that Damascus road in Acts chapter 9. And uh, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting the saints? Why are you persecuting me? Christ so closely identifies with the church, his body, that when you persecute the church, the body of Christ, you are persecuting Christ. And the opposite is true, amazingly. I was delighted to be able to draw this connection even in my own mind for the first time this week. In Matthew 25, that wonderful uh, passage where we're gathered before um, Christ and many will be commended for their, their ministry. And you remember what Jesus would say to many. He said, listen, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you, you came and visited me. Of course, that caused confusion to many of them. He said, Lord, when, when do we see you naked and clothe you? When do we uh, see you hungry and feed you? And what does Jesus answer? Whatever you have done to the least of these, and this is key, of my brothers, you have done for me. So Christ is specifically referring not about your pagan neighbor, but about the, the family of God. He says, when you minister and bless the family of God, the least of these, my brothers, you are ministering to me. We, in other words, Christ is so united with us that he suffers the afflictions of the church and enjoys the blessings given to the church. What an incentive, therefore, it is to minister to one another, knowing that when I minister to you, I am in, in many ways ministering to Jesus himself. That is an extraordinary idea to me and an incredible incentive towards 
uh, this type of ministry. This is something I think that Dr. Helen Rosary, uh, excuse me, Rosevere discovered, who served as a medical missionary in Zaire for 20 years. 12 of those years were in wonderful, fruitful ministry as the only doctor in a city of a half a million. And yet everything changed in 1964 with the political turmoil in Zaire. She found herself arrested and jailed for the next six months where she endured unbelievable brutality. At one point, she would have been executed if it were not for a 17-year-old boy who stood up and defended her. As a result, he was savagely beaten and left for dead. In the midst of this, Dr. Rosary, uh, Rosevere, excuse me, had this crisis of faith, as you can imagine. She felt forsaken by God. And if you read her account, it's in the depth of that perceived forsakenness that God responded with this incredible, overwhelming sense of his presence. And he put these words on her heart, as she writes in her own words. 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. The privilege of being identified with me. These are not your sufferings. They are my sufferings. Christ suffers when his body suffers. That truth settled in her heart. She said she became so overwhelmed with a sense of privilege to suffer on behalf of Christ. I think that's in some way what Paul is doing when he's connecting his sufferings with Christ. As are all who suffer in Christ. Christ in some way experiences those sufferings. I think that's going to help us answer this question. Here we come. What is lacking in Christ's suffering? And how does Paul fill up that lack? Of course, we know the context, as we've already seen. Is that Paul saying, this is all happening when I'm proclaiming the word of God? In fact, you read verse 26 and verse 27, I'm proclaiming it to the Gentiles. And so as he takes the gospel to the world, or as you take the gospel to a co-worker, it will require, at the least, self-denial. It will require suffering for some. For others, it will require sacrifice. What? Because the world opposes the gospel. You're aware of this? Right? The world stands in opposition to the gospel. They think they're doing just fine without Jesus. Thank you very much. They don't want to hear they have a need of a savior. They definitely don't want to hear that there's a king who demands their allegiance. There will always be opposition to the gospel. If you, if you are, are unsure of that, just read the story of Christ. You want to see how the world um, responds to the gospel, responds to Christ. And, of course, Jesus would tell us in the farewell discourse, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. We read in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, for the sake of Christ, it has been granted to you not only to believe in his name, but to suffer for his sake. And so I think the suffering of Christ is incomplete in this way. When we, it will take suffering to bring the gospel to others. And when those messengers suffer, when you and I suffer, Christ suffers. For we're his body. Does that make sense? Christ suffered on the cross to accomplish salvation. Christ now suffers through believers in order to announce salvation. And so in this sense, his suffering is incomplete in this sense. It's going to take sacrifice, self-denial, suffering to bring the gospel to others, to bring the gospel to the nations, and he will endure that suffering in us. In fact, I think there's actually something more going on here. And if I could just speculate here, you know, don't take this to the bank, 
Um, but I, I wonder if suffering for Christ is not simply a byproduct of living in a fallen world, but it's actually part of God's strategy. Right? Is, is suffering that just happens to a Christian because we live in the midst of sin, or is there a greater purpose behind it? You know what Paul said to, God said to Paul on the Damascus Road? I will show you how much you must suffer. Sounds like a strategy to me. And, and I, I wonder if this is the principle, and again, I'm speculating here. But when we suffer for the gospel, when we suffer to love others, when we suffer for Jesus, we show how valuable Jesus is. We show in a powerful way how much we love other people. This is one of a thousand flaws with the heresy called the prosperity gospel. Because, listen, the prosperity gospel will not make anybody cherish Jesus. It makes them cherish prosperity. And if Jesus gives you a car, then yeah, I'll take Jesus. And if Jesus fixed my marriage, of course, I'll take Jesus. Right? If Jesus pays out like a big uh, you know, slot machine up in heaven, yeah, I'll keep taking Jesus. I'll keep pulling that arm. Fa fantastic. But what happens when Jesus doesn't pay out? What happens when following Jesus makes your life harder and yet you still follow Jesus? Does that not testify to your surpassing worth in Christ? Does that not testify to your great love for others who need Christ? And I wonder if there's a strategy there and God's expanding the glories of Jesus to do so through sacrifice and the sufferings of his people to show the worth of Jesus. Oswald Sanders would tell a story of an Indian evangelist who traveled a great distance in order uh, to reach a village to proclaim the gospel. He gathered a crowd around him, preached the gospel, and they all scoffed at him, mocked him. He was so uh, disheartened and despondent. He had traveled all this way, and no one, not a single individual, said, I want to hear more. He just walked out of the village, lied down under a shade tree, and fell asleep. He awoke a few hours later with the entire village surrounding him. Of course, he was immediately alarmed, thinking that they intend him harm. Until his fears were allayed by the tribal chief who said, we came and saw you and we noticed your blistered and bloody feet. We decided that you care about us because you have come so far to have feet like this. We would like to hear your message again. I think that evangelist filled up what was lacking in the afflictions of Jesus with his blistered feet for the gospel. And I think if we understand this, it will impact our attitude when we do have to sacrifice, when we are called to suffer for Jesus. And so consider lastly this morning, it is a joy-giving suffering. Joy-giving suffering. Notice how Paul begins here in verse 24. Of course, we've seen this many times already. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now let's be honest. That kind of sounds insane, right? Like this guy has some screws loose. No one, who rejoice, why would you rejoice in suffering? I mean, most of us do the exact opposite. We grumble in suffering. We whine in suffering. We complain in suffering. And if you're pretty spiritual, you might endure the suffering. But I, I would imagine virtually none of us Suffer for the church, suffer for the gospel, and rejoice in it. And so we might ask, what's wrong with Paul? 
I mean, is he so spiritual he doesn't care uh, about little things like freedom and food and comfortable bed? Is that what's going on? No, Paul loved those things. Just like you and I love those things. But he loves something more than those things. He loves something more than freedom and food and beds and ease and comfort. He loves seeing the church built. He loves seeing the gospel spread. He loves seeing Christ worshipped. And he loved that more than ease. More than a pain-free life. I think this is the principle that Paul is teaching us. Sacrifice is joyful when what you surrender, when you, when you surrender something you love in order to receive something you love even more. Let me say that one more time. Sacrifice is joyful when you surrender something you love in order to receive something you love even more. We don't like pain. Paul doesn't like pain. But we can rejoice in what God accomplishes through it. And I'll tell you, every mother in this room understands this. Right? Babies are, are beautiful, wonderful. In my heart, one of the great tragedies of COVID is I'm not allowed to hold babies. Uh, I got to stay away. But of course, the process of bringing a baby into this world is, is a, a strenuous one. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, it's, it's scary. It's hard. It's difficult. Right? It's strenuous. And for us men who have watched it, there's part of us to say, who would actually go through that voluntarily? Why would anyone do that? And then do it again. And for some women, again and again and again and again and again. Why? Why would anyone do that? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. In fact, every mother in this room will tell you why. They can look to the children next to them or call them on the phone and say, I would gladly go through that that I might have you. They, they would say, if you will, if suffering through labor is what I need to get you, then I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. So Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering, not because I love suffering, but because of what it's producing, and I will do whatever it takes to see Christ be worshipped. And it's in that sacrifice, in that suffering, that God brings joy. And so when God calls us to suffer, when God, listen, Christian, when he calls you to sacrifice, he's not calling you to a joyless life. When you suffer for the sake of the church, for the sake of loss, for the sake of the glory of Jesus, he is calling you to your joy. I tell you, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, the book of Hebrews tells us. He said, I'll take the cross and I'll take it with joy. Did he like the cross? Of course not. He liked what the cross was producing, namely you and I. And of course in Luke 9, 23, he now calls for us to do what? Whoever would follow me must take up his cross and deny himself and come after me. He calls us onto this Calvary road. But that Calvary road, even though it includes sacrifice, yes, suffering, it is not a miserable road. One pastor explained the Calvary road is not a joyless road. It's a painful one, but it is a profoundly happy one. And so I tell you, and I think you need to hear this in light of what you're constantly bombarded with in our land, that when you choose the fleeting pleasures of comfort and security, Listen, when you choose that over sacrifice and suffering for the cause of the church, for the cause of Christ, for the cause of missions, for the cause of love, you are actually choosing against your joy. The sacrificial life is the rejoicing life. 
it is better to give than to receive. And when you do, the joy of the Lord will be your strength in the midst of choices that this world cannot comprehend. I was praying this week that, um, even praying last night with my children, that, that some, in light of this passage, might even burden maybe some of you young people that one day God would take you to a foreign land to become a missionary. Maybe for your career, maybe for a couple years, maybe for six months. Maybe some of you older people, as you approach retirement, what do we want to do? Maybe God would call you to a foreign land. Why? Because it's easy? No. But because Christ is worth it. And there's joy in it. All of us, members in particular, I speak to you, members of Hamilton Baptist Church, we need to be serving one another. And you will find when we do, and even sacrifice to do so, there is joy in those sacrifices. Joy in, in what God is doing in other people's lives. Joy in what God is doing through our missionary partners throughout this world. And so I ask you, in light of this passage, as we come to a close, where are you sacrificing? Where are you suffering? And are you doing it with joy for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of the brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of our Lord? Perhaps a productive conversation this afternoon would be, is there something that we can be giving up for the God's sake, for the church's sake, if there's some sacrifice, one step that we can take towards this destination. Perhaps I'll, I'll leave you with the story of a Masari warrior named Joseph, who hopefully this story will inspire you as it did for me. It was one day that Joseph was walking along a hot, dusty road in Africa where he met somebody who shared, him, shared with him the gospel. Joseph accepted the gospel immediately and did so with great joy. He received Christ by faith and he was so overwhelmed with what he had heard that he ran back to his village in order to tell everyone. And so he did so. He went door by door telling them about the cross of Jesus and the resurrection, his resurrection, telling, telling uh, everyone that there is salvation found in Christ and of course expecting everyone to receive Christ with the same joy that he had received it. To his dismay, not only did they not receive Jesus, they actually became irate with him. The men seized him and pinned him to the ground, while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. They dragged his body from the village and left him to die in the bush. He didn't die. He managed to crawl to a watering hole, and after days of passing in and out of conscious, consciousness, he, he recovered. And as he did, he wondered, why did they become so angry? He concluded that he must have told the story wrong. And so he rehearsed it in his mind. Okay, I got to get it right this time. And so he limped back into the center of the village about a week later and declared, Jesus died that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God. Once again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him with barbed wire reopening the wounds that have just begun to heal. Once again, they dragged him out of the village, left him in the bush to die. Somewhat miraculously, Joseph, days later, according to Billy Graham, who tells this story, awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. This time they attacked him before even a word came out of his mouth. And as they flogged him, during that time, he spoke to them of Jesus Christ. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him had begun to weep. 
he woke a third time. This time not in the bush, but in his own bed. His attackers now working to save his life and nurse him back to health. And he discovered that in his time of being unconscious and recovery, that the entire village had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Just another believer, I think, in his flesh, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. My prayer for you, Hamilton Baptist Church, is that God would liberate you and I from this bondage to this mindless pursuit of more and more and more, more ease and more comfort and more goodies and more things that he might embolden us, that we might joyfully choose to lay down and to sacrifice and, yes, even suffer for the cause of Christ and for his people that we might find the joy of Christ in it. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the word that challenges us. May you help us not to get distracted by the destination of where we ought to be, but that we would just be able to take a step or two in the right direction. That you would, through as we even consider the worth of our Lord, that we would long to serve him and his people in some way that reflects how he served us. He gave so much. Shouldn't we follow him on that road? We follow a crucified God. Should there therefore not be suffering in our lives, at least sacrifice, at least self-denial, will you help us to discover where we might advance in this? Even as we pray for those who do not know Christ, we pray that they would see in him a forgiving Savior and a resurrected Lord, that they would bow their knee to him in faith and repentance. And Father, I do pray that perhaps there might be one here or more that you would begin to burden them with a desire to take Jesus to the nations and to be partnered with Hamilton Baptist Church to do so. May we not just be a mission-minded church. May we be a mission-sending church. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.